Welcome to the Shalhaba Community Church Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by the following message. I mean, so let's go way back to the Garden of Eden and let's, let's look at the first father-son relationship. Now, I may get around to reading the Bible this morning, but if I quote bits out of it, will that be okay? Well, if somebody says that, that wasn't much of a message, you didn't read one Bible verse. But I'll get to it at some point, I reckon. So, so you go way back to the Garden of Eden, and it's interesting because in Genesis 2.15, it says, Therefore God made a man, and he put him into a garden, and he gave him two, two descriptions or, or jobs to do. He had to tend and keep it. Now, being an inquisitive sort of a fellow, I went back to Strong's Concordance, the one that gave you the Hebrew meanings of those English words, and I wanted to know what the word tend means. Is anybody interested to hear this this morning? Two, three, there's three. I'm going to go with it. I'm going to go, oh, four, up the back. It was very polite of the latecomers. Yes, I suppose I'm interested. So (laughs) the word tend means to cultivate to dress as in a vine dresser, to prune. It means to, um, oh, I think I've forgotten some of the other words. But if you look at it, it was all about being, and I'm going to give you his first job. If you want to know what Adam's first job was, it was a market gardener. That's hard work. Anybody here been a market gardener? Um, no, it's probably because it's very hard work. And, and, uh, and so there he was. But the second word was keep. Now, the word keep, some of the original Hebrew words for keep meant to protect. Have a listen to these two words, to look narrowly. What would it mean to look narrowly? I'll show you what it means. Like that. That's looking narrowly. It's being very observant. Another word for it is watchman. And so if you think about it, he had two jobs to do. The first one was a market gardener and the second one was a security guard. He had a wife to look after and pretty soon he had a couple of kids on the run. But look at the mess that happened in the Garden of Eden. It was it. You wouldn't say this is the most successful family experience you ever read about. In a very short amount of time, the father's had to pull the stick out and he's had to discipline severely this young man. And, and, and don't think, oh, well, you know, he was just really primitive. No, no, no. Look, it messes with this whole thing about Genesis, messes with your thinking. I'm going to ask you a question. Was, was the first man. Uh, or is mankind decadent or primitive? If you, if, you, if you go with the evolutionary theory, and that's all it is, it means we came out of the primordial swamp and we began to evolve and get better, and then one day we got smarter and smarter and smarter and smarter, and here we are today. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The person who was there saw it all and, and was able to help mankind record the actual events of that time, says, no, he was made in the image of God and God is very smart. And so Adam, 
Adam's sin in terms of doing what God said not to do was so severe that he brought death on the whole human race and had he and his wife uh, ushered out of this beautiful garden that they were in. And, and some people say, how come God let the snake in? Where, where's that snake come from? Well, maybe Adam went to sleep on the job. His job was to be a security guard for the whole of the garden. And maybe he went to sleep on the job somehow, figuratively speaking, and Satan was able to get in. Just a thought. I don't mind if you disagree with that, but I think that's true. And as a result, he was excommunicated from that beautiful place because sin had entered the human race. Not only that, but have a look at the, what, what happened afterwards. They had two sons, Cain and Abel. And one day, Cain, I'm assuming, grabbed something hard, like a lump of wood or a stone, big rock or something like that, and he brained his brother and killed him. Now, you would have to say... Adam and Eve would be smitten to their heart. They would have been cut to the quick with the tragedy of the first family on planet Earth. And Adam would have felt so condemned and so bad because of the failure that he'd been to his wife and then to his kids. What do you think? So fatherhood didn't really get off to a great start in the history of the human race on planet Earth, did it? when you think about it, and yet it's so important to get it right. Let me say something really important. The apprenticeship for fatherhood is sonship. If you're making notes, that'd be a good note to make. Let, let me ask you, when does a man's apprenticeship to become a father begin? Okay, let me ask you another question. When does, when does a carpenter, when does his apprenticeship start to become a qualified carpenter? First day on the job, isn't it? All right. When does a son begin his apprenticeship to become a father? First day on the job. Way, 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 way. You've got to trace it all the way back to what quality of sonship the father helps the son live and then the quality of sonship that the son chooses as he grows through sonship and adolescence all the way to adulthood. And if we do that well as sons, the chances are we could become great fathers. And if you look at what happened in the garden, one of the reasons Adam had so much trouble as a father is that he rebelled as a son. How are we doing? Is this a happy message yet? <laughs> All we've done is talk about disease and tragedy. <laughs> Welcome to church. Interesting. But my first point this morning is that, that the apprenticeship for fatherhood is sonship. So if you are young and if you have been unconventional or irrational or if you have been a non-conformist or a, a person that's kicked against being well fathered can I encourage you today quickly change your mind <laughs> your father the quality of your fathering depends greatly 
on your responses to the father you put around that, that's put around you. Now, it's interesting because God is a father before he's anything else. Would you agree with me? And so uh, being a father, and, and for us men, that's what we are before we're anything else. We're fathers. We can change the world and lose our kids. I mean, one day I had a shocking revelation when I was preaching. I thought about the great white throne judgment. Like there's nothing like a father to see the bigger picture and sons to see the here and now. But the older you get, the more you think about eternity and you wonder, is it really true? Does everybody go from mortality to immortality? They just change states. They don't really die as in finito, another Italian word. You know, like, is, is death the end or do we just simply go through a transition from mortality to immortality? Well, the Bible says we go from mortality to immortality. We live forever. Think about that. And I had this, um, this amazing revelation. For me, it was amazing. I could see what in the book, right at the end of the book of Revelation, it talks about a great white throne judgment. And it says God's going to separate the sheep this side and the goats this side. In other words, the ones that are his and the ones that have refused him. Now, I don't know what that does to you, but that's a very choleric moment. That's a very black and white experience. You either in or you out. You're either there or you're not there. You've either got an eternity looking forwards with him or an eternity looking forwards without him. Pause for effect, friends. Just pause for effect. And, and, and in my mind... I could see fathers and mothers running around through the crowd. There's going to be everybody who's ever lived in that crowd all the way back to Adam and Eve. We're all going to be there. All of humanity, the, the accumulated generations are going to be there. But there's going to be some mothers and fathers, I would suggest, that are feverishly running around looking for their sons and their daughters. Johnny, have you seen Johnny? Did he make it? Is he here? On that day, we will have realized that the most important thing we ever did in our short little lives was get our kids to heaven. And so the question comes to us, what do we have to do as fathers to get our kids to heaven? Well, the first thing is become a good son. Now, a little word of testimony. My dad was a fighter pilot in the Second World War. He went to north of Africa and he flew kitty hawks and tomahawks against the German Messerschmitts and Italian planes. And there's a little note for the Italians again. It's just an Italian, a kind of a morning when you think about it. And he, 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 <laughs> he, he, fought, he fought over there and, you know, at some theatres of the war, the average lifespan, depending on how it ebbed and flowed, but the average lifespan for a fighter pilot in the air was 15 minutes. Sometimes it really stretched out and gave you hope to between two and three weeks. So every time those fighter pilots went up into the air, 
they were playing, they were playing Russian roulette with their lives. He had a massive nervous breakdown, came back, somehow scraped himself up off the deck and finished as a squadron leader fighting the Japanese, you know, flying against Japanese zeros over Papua New Guinea. And how he's, I mean, he must have survived the war because look who's here. And his second son was a little boy called David. And I'm so proud of my father, but he had such, now that I look back and I understand it, he had such a bad case of post-traumatic stress disorder that he had the capacity to sire children but not to father children. And when he died in 1968, three weeks after that, this young 18-year-old went to Hawkesbury Agricultural College and, uh, and so lost. His dad had just died, didn't know which way was up, had left home and was starting something, uh, an uncertain future. He was there because he didn't know where else to go. That was me. And you know what? My heavenly father was so concerned about me that he didn't just provide one father, he provided a network of fathers. I have people say to me these days, I don't know who my father is or nobody's ever fathered me. I would suggest to you those fathers are around you if you will soften your heart and if you will look for them, you'll probably find somebody around you who'll value you, who'll buy into your life and they'll invest into your future. I'll guarantee they're there somewhere because, you know, like my, I've got a friend that reminds me God doesn't have any favourites. And so I can confidently say, if he did that for me, he'll do it for you. And this, this is for sons and daughters. Please, you know, just interpret while I'm not including everything in what I'm saying. But, but you know, there was a man there at Hawkesbury Agricultural College. He was just a groundsman. He, he picked up the papers, swept the leaves, took the rubbish to the uh, Blacktown Tip. You know, he was, just, he was just that kind of a person. And I met him, but, you know, he's one of these people. He always smiled, he always whistled, he always sang, and nobody knew why he was so happy all the time. And when I went there, I met him, and I, I got to know him a little bit. You know what? Uh, here's the, the quick history. In 1866, a man called Thomas Barnardo left Ireland to go to London to become a medical missionary. He got to London. There was a cholera outbreak where 3,000 lives were lost and so many children were orphaned. They were sleeping on roofs and in gutters. And so he, he, you know, in between becoming a medical missionary, this man began to look after these kids. He started a school called the Ragged School. How about that? That's so cute. And, and, um, and, and he began to look after them. And uh, um, how did it work? Uh, after a while, after three years, his vision changed to looking after homeless children. One day, a little child came to them. I imagine he had red hair because they called him carrots. This little child came and they were full and they turned him away and two days later, they found his body out in the streets. Thomas Bernardo was so upset by that experience that he said, this is, our, this is our, our mantra from now on. We will never turn another child away. 
And there are Bernardo's homes in Australia and all around the world today. When he died in 1905, there were 65 cottages, a school, a hospital, a church, and, and it was just expanding and expanding. And somewhere in the 1920s, somebody brought a little baby to one of the Bernardo homes. And this was the man that I met at Hawkesbury Agricultural College. He'd been an, he'd been a, an alcoholic, and when he got born again... As a result, he promised God he'd give him his life when his wife and child looked like dying in, in childbirth. And he was true to his word. And his wife was so uh, confused when instead of coming home and smashing the furniture and beating her up, he came home with flowers and chocolate. She picked up the little boy and ran for a life. And he's, he never, ever saw them again. But then I arrived. And here was a son that needed a father. And there was a father that needed a son and we met and this man took me you know he introduced me to the girl who became my first wife he took me to the bible bookstore to help me buy my first bible he would make the worst cup of coffee <laughs> i'd finish studying at nine o'clock at night uh, oh, that's about as much as i could do and <laughs> i'd go over to his quarters and he'd have those plastic mugs and he'd squeeze in condensed milk and he'd squeeze in coffee out of a tube and he'd mix it up and we would drink coffee and he'd disciple me and teach me the word of God. I'll never forget that coffee. <laughs> I probably remember the bad coffee more than the word of God some days. <laughs> but you know, that wasn't my own. You know, God, God looking after me. I'd been born again in the early days of that, but this man fathered me became one of the major griefs in my life after he finished as a Baptist pastor at Warilla. I went to his funeral and at the Five Islands crematorium up there somewhere, is that what you call it? Five roads or there's five something just down the road there. And, and um, uh, we, we were there at the funeral and the, the depths just broke up in me. I wept and wept and wept like I hadn't for my flesh and blood father, for my stepfather you know was just amazing and what he wasn't the only one there have been fathers of movements fathers of churches fathers over small groups i promise you you're surrounded by fathers and god's plan is to give everybody here the kind of fathering that's going to make them into great fathers themselves can you say amen to that <laughs> that's so good let me go to a look, look at this. I'm going to read a scripture. I oh, know. Acts chapter 10, verse 1 to 4. Okay, all you Bible students, who's the father that I'm going to be speaking about? Acts chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. Who's in there? Peter is in there, but the, it doesn't refer to him in this one. There's another one. Yeah. And his name was? He was a good Italian, a Cornelius. Oh no, mamma mia. Says this, in Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly. I looked up the word prayed regularly. Do you know what it means? 
It means to bind oneself to another. So here's a guy that was not trying to be a church leader. He was a centurion. But he had taken his relationship with God just, you know, to heart. And he bound himself to the Lord in prayer every time he prayed. One afternoon about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? He asked the angel. And the angel replied, your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now, my question to you, I don't know whether you were listening when I was reading that out, but what was Cornelius doing that was attracting the interest of his heavenly father? Do you want me to read it again? I'll just go through it quickly. He was devout, a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly. What was he doing that was attracting the presence or the interest, the, the extreme interest of Almighty God, his Father? He was praying and he was giving. And what's more, you know, like in those days, slavery was the thing and they probably had slaves in the house, but he became a father to everybody you would have loved it being a slave in his house because you weren't treated like a slave. That was the answer to slavery. That, that you know, people became born again, the slaves became born again, you became a family. <laughs> Interesting. And so here we've got a person. Can I, can I say something? I think he was doing the basics really well. Where, where are the things that you'd write up on a, you know, something big where everybody can see, this man did that, for goodness sake, he was praying and he was giving to the poor. You can do that. There's nothing that he was doing that we can't do. It's funny you know what happens. Now, some men are really cautious about praying with their family members. Some men say, oh, I've got my own relationship with God. We tend to isolate. But I'll tell you what it is, men. It's our insecurity that's keeping us out there. Somewhere along the line, I promise you if, if you, if you get with your wife or your kids and you've never done it before and you start to pray, you say, how do I pray? i got no idea. But if it sounded like this, well, God, I'm not so hot at this. You know, but um, look, I'd really like it if you'd bless the missus and I'd really like it if you'd bless the kids and um, look, I can't think of anything else to say. Uh, let's see, how does it finish? Amen. How about that? I can remember Bernie came to me once and I said, do you pray with your wife? Oh, no, he said, I couldn't do that. I said, yes, you could. I said, how about I teach you a 19-second prayer? 19 seconds, he said, oh, I think I can do that. I said, all right, here we go. You've only got to remember three words, gift, blessing, and protection. Can you do that? No, he said, I'll write it down. <laughs> so he wrote it down on a piece of paper, and I said, now get out your watch and time me and see if this doesn't take, see if it only takes 19 seconds. I better drink some of this. Otherwise, I'll forget what I'm talking into. And so... <laughs> 
And so I said, listen, listen, Bernie, how about this? Father, I thank you for this wife that you gave me. She's your gift to me. Father, I bless her in Jesus' name. And wherever she goes today, let her go in the protection of God. Amen. Bernie looked up and he said, 21 seconds. <laughs> we were kidding by then. We were on the same page because I'd made it easy for him. I said, Bernie, that's how you start. And as you grow in confidence, you'll get better at it as time goes by. I looked at Faye, his wife. I said, Faye, this is another appointment. I said, Faye, how's Bernie going with the prayer? Oh, David, she, she said, he's so funny. We cuddle up in bed and he puts his arm around my neck, but he's got the bit of paper in his hand. <laughs> he got the bit of paper and he's saying, dear Jesus, you know, and he does the gift, blessing, protection thing. Where did that come from? It just came out of my head. I just wanted to get him started. It may not be the best prayer you could pray, but it's a good one to start with, you see. And so, and so, he, and, and 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 she was chuckling away at how Bernie. But I asked her a question. I said, "Faye, how do you feel when Bernie does pray for you?" You know what she did? She leant, she snuggled into Bernie. She said, "Oh, David," she said, oh, "I feel wonderful when Bernie prays for me." It's not hard. St look, if you're real, if you're a real Aussie, start Aussie. My advice is stay Aussie. <laughs> but, but just let it grow and, and keep going so that, you know, you, you, you can get there. Oh, wonderful. That's what Cornelius, that's probably how he started. He probably just did it in Latin. A dear, a lord. Well, thank you for my wife. She's of your gift to me. How am I doing? His last name was probably Picarello. <laughs> Cornelius Picarello. There you go. You're getting a good run for your money here today, guys. Last point. I don't know how many I've made so far, but this is the last one. The best environment for fathers to grow, the best growth environment for fathers is the home. I'll just run that past you again. The best growth environment for a father is the home. In my home, as I've been growing up, you know, just kind of maturing over the years, I've learned how to pray in the home. I've learned how to be relevant in the home. I've learned how to step out by faith and trust God for healings and miracles in the home. I've even become a worship leader in the home. Like I couldn't sing to save my life these days, but I used to have a little guitar. You know, it was mostly out of tune, Warwick. You could have come in handy some days because <laughs> I could never quite figure out when it was in tune, so it was mostly not. And so, and so and I made up a song once that went like this. Now I'm going to have a crack at singing it. So, you know, just go like that. goes... Matthew Schaefer, that's my son, loves the Lord. Matthew Schaefer loves the Lord. Saved by grace, this isn't even in tune. Filled with the Spirit, speaking in another vocabulary. 
Growing in Jesus, loving his word. When the Spirit spoke, I heard. That was terrible. But you know what they loved about it? Oh, you're too kind. Oh, stop it, stop it. So, <laughs> you know what they loved about it? Their name was in it. My kids would sit there saying, my turn, Daddy, my turn, my turn, give it me. So I'd say, Belinda Schaefer. And they'd, they'd sit there with their little rosy faces beaming away because they were in a song. Now, you won't know this, but, you know, there was a time when I got in the top 20 of the Country Music Festival Songwriters Competition. It's true. I might add, I was probably about 19, and the first 18 were nothing to write home to mum about. So, <laughs> you know, take it like it was. But probably the song that I've wrote, that I, that I wrote, that has been an investment into the generation still today, like my daughter came up to me, and she's got two little ones now, and she's their worship pastors at their church and whatever, and they said, Dad... Did you write the line is the king of the jungle? Has anybody in this church ever sung that song? The lion is the king of the jungle. It's been changed a bit. Some, somebody, somebody took my words and uh, look, it's exactly the same except for the tune and the words and the actions. <laughs> <laughs> But they're still singing it at C3 in Newcastle because that's where, that's where Rachel and her husband Nate are serving. And so that little song has been more sung down through the generation. I'm sorry, you've never heard of it and you don't need to have heard of it. But there are still churches singing that song because it goes, the lion is the king of the jungle, the whale is the king of the sea, the eagle is the king of the birds that sing and Jesus is the king of me. Aren't they good words? You know, it, it took me about 15 seconds to write that. It was just a moment of inspiration. I was just playing around on the guitar and out popped these couple of words. You know, I just thought of eagles and kings and, you know, uh, and whatever. So I became a worship leader. Where was I? In my home. My little son, Matthew, used to get these terrible earaches. And, and uh, you know, like I'd go in there and I'd say, now, Maddie, I'm sorry if I've told you this story before. I'd say, now, Maddie, when I pray... I'm not angry with you. I'm angry with your earache. He said, or he used to say, all right, Daddy. Because I didn't want him to be frightened if I got aggressive, you know. So I'd kneel down by his bed. I put my hands on his ear and I said, earache in the name of Jesus, leave this body. I mean, you know, it was Reinhard Bonnke and Billy Graham and it was all rolled into one. I was just going for it. There, there were, I didn't leave any of the saints. There was the Apostle Paul and Peter and Luke and James. And I, I, just, I just channeled everybody into that prayer. I was channeling before the New Age movement discovered it. <laughs> so I can't see anybody leaving, but I hope you realise it's just a bit of Aussie humour. Um, but so we, we just, I would go for it and I'd, I'd stop after a while. I'd say, now, Maddie, how's your earache? And most of the time he'd say, Daddy, it's good. Or sometimes he'd say, it's getting better. I'd say, oh, that's good. We're going to pray again. And I'd beat the thing up again. It's like, you know, when I came against those things, I learned that it was like grabbing a hammer and smashing the life out of something. 
It was like getting a baseball bat and smacking something right between the ears. You know, like it was, it was like that. And, and, and little Maddie used to get healed and he learned that Jesus healed and I learned how to move in the gift of healing. I learned how to move in the power of God. Where was I? At home. A worship leader, you know, all the rest of it. But as I come to the end of the message, let me share something important because I became a prophet at home. Now, it wouldn't have mattered if I'd never uttered another prophetic word in any other environment, but boy, did I learn to prophesy. Because we were born with a little girl who had allergial syndrome, and she went through years and years of, you know, I, I can probably remember her back to, the, back to the time when she was, say, about seven or eight or nine. And because her liver, part of the, part of the thing was you needed a liver transplant, I remember when they did her story on RPA and they pulled this, this old liver out and put a new liver in to her body. This old liver looked nothing like a liver. It was green and misshaped. And, you know, afterwards I said to Belinda, we should have got a medal, a Victoria Cross, and pinned it on that rotten green liver for just lasting as long as it did. This, this liver looked like, you know, probably it was only prayer that kept her to not having the liver transplant till she was 28. And, and most people have it before the age of 10. So I don't know. I'll find out later when I know everything and I don't know now. So that's okay. But, but you know, when we'd go in, we used to have to mix up... Did anybody here ever mix up glue with just flour and water and, when you were kids? Well, that's what this stuff looked like, but it had a citrus kind of a flavour. It was called cholestyramine, and you had to shovel it into a mouth to help it digest the food because the liver wasn't doing a great job with it. And so I'd go in there at night, and, uh, or sometimes Marilyn would, and, but I, I had the job a lot of the time, and I used to, as soon as she, she, I, we used to think she was asleep, and as soon as she could smell the citric kind of a thing, open, you know, the mouth had opened, we'd just shovel this stuff in and whatever, but I'd hang around in there, and I began to declare things over her life because I knew that she needed a miracle you know she certainly needed a move of God in her life and so as a dad and this is ju this just came out of a heart of love for his daughter you understand I wasn't trying to be anybody great there was nobody watching and I sat I'd sit down on a bed and I'd say Belinda you're going to be the greatest woman of God you're going to rise up out of this thing with a message for your generation and your voice is going to be heard everywhere. You're going to stand before hundreds and tell them that no matter what has happened to them in their life, they can still trust Jesus and love Jesus, even though they've got to play cards that they've been dealt that other people haven't been. And you know something? When I'd begin to declare this and prophesy this, I would feel the anointing of God come on me. I mean, do you know what I mean when I say that? I, I just felt like there was somehow God had parachuted into the room. I'd get a head full of steam up and I'd begin to go for it and deliver this thing. And it's like somebody turned a tap on and when the tap was turned off, I'd get up and leave and turn the light out and, you know, that was it. She never expected she could, would have been married. I mean, she didn't know whether she'd live that long. And so when this beautiful young man came along and didn't see anything wrong with her and loved her, loved her and married her. And, and at the day of their reception, when Belinda, who was never short of a word, <laughs> 
got up to give her speech at, the, at her reception. She said, she said, Dad, you never knew this, but when you came in to the room to give me the cholestyramine, she said, I, I always woke up because I wanted to listen and drink in the words that you were saying and declaring and prophesying over my life. And I became somebody, I learned how to prophesy. Where did I learn? In my own home. It's the safest place you can learn because every, at home, everybody will tell you the truth. If you miss it, they'll tell you. If you're big-noting yourself, they'll tell you. You've got to be totally authentic. It's the, probably the only environment where we have the privilege of being totally authentic. So it's a great place to learn how to be a son of God and then a father of God at the time. Could the keys come? Would that be all right? Rowan and Bell were married, and their marriage lasted 15 months. And it was just before Easter, about four and a half years ago. And Bell would go into RPA on a fairly regular basis to have a bile ducts cleaned out, and you know, it just it was kind of like the after sale service thing. And uh, she went in this time just before Easter with, a, with an infection, which isn't unusual because your immune system has to be lowered if you're to keep an organ that you weren't born with in your body. So you've got to lower your immune system to stop your body rejecting the organ. So she went in and then they sent her home because they don't like many people in hospital over Easter. But she got worse and worse over the Easter break. And then on Easter Monday, we took her back in to um, hospital and she was getting worse and worse and worse through the week and nobody knew what was happening. And in hindsight, what we now know is that a very, very common form of cancer for organ transplant recipients was sweeping through a body and within a week she was in heaven. But before she went, she was in intensive care and she was getting worse and worse and I was ministering to everybody and strengthening everybody. I had a worldwide prayer chain going for her. And then it came to the time where the staff came to us and said, look, it's time to take her off the life support. And uh, Rowan and I were their husband and a father. And uh, I said, would you mind giving me a moment with my girl? And Rowan said that'd be okay. The staff left. And for the last time, I went into my daughter's bed and sat on it to prophesy over her. And I sat on the bed and said, Baby, you're going to be in heaven real soon. And you're going to see Jesus said you're going to slip out of your body you're going to go straight into that place and you'll you'll never be sick again you'll see your mum be a great reunion typical dad I said to her it's not going to hurt <laughs> and very soon after that they took out the life support 
and she slipped off into eternity. And I realised there once again that a dad's job is to get his kids to heaven, is to get everyone he loves to heaven. Right at that moment, my job had been done for my second born, for my daughter Belinda. And today, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to recommission every dad to their task in this house. Some of you dads have just, you know, been consistent and wonderful, but most families aren't like that. Way back in Genesis, when Cain and Abel were arguing as brothers, God said to Cain that sin crouches at the door and you must master it. And in the course of our life, sometimes life just gets too tough and not all of us, not all of us master this and we, we fall. But you're not finished. God's great at fixing up messes. God had to fix up his own mess. If, can I say it like that and not be struck with a bolt of lightning? I don't know. But he, he had a father's mess to fix up for the first 130 years. He's not a stranger to this. And you know, Adam was 130 years old when finally he had a son that he raised in the image of God. You're not done, dads. If you can look back on divorce or abandonment or, or, or a bad father for yourself, you're not done with. Because God Almighty, who is an enduringly consistent and wonderful father, says, no, I can raise you up again. I can cause you to stand on your feet again. I can cause you to rise again. And, and you know, I, I sometimes wonder how far back am I allowed to remember in life is anybody here like me you've got some dumb decisions and some dumb things that you've done that you'd rather forget yeah you like me well i worked out that god draws a line and he says you're not allowed to remember back beyond that now i'm going to ask you this morning where's the line how far back are you allowed to remember all right i'll put you out of your misery he says the mercies of the lord are new every morning that's how far back, that's how far back you're allowed to remember. That's it. And so if yesterday was a bad day for you, why don't you just jump up again? Why don't you just jump in again? Why don't you just let him have his way again? Why don't you just let him raise you up all over again? And I wonder if every grandfather, every father, and every, every other person that that's thinking they could be a father one day, why don't you just stand to your feet for me? That's probably every male in the room, I reckon. Because I'd like to pray for you. Every male. I'd like to pray for you. And some of you need to be recommissioned. Some of you need to be said, you're not finished with yet. You're not a lost case or a lost cause. You've got a great future and God's going to put a new foundation under your feet and you're going to walk forwards in that. Father, I'm praying for every man in this room today. 
because father we've got a city that needs fathers in it we've got a city of lost people that need to have a, a need to have fathers praying for it and fathers reaching it and so father i'm praying for the wholeness of god to come into every man into every every older man every grandfather every father every man man that dreams of becoming a father that lord jesus you would help those of us that are sons to become quality sons, great sons, making great son decisions so that they can emerge into great fatherhood. Lord, we recommission them. Fathers, I recommission you in the name of Jesus. I breathe hope and encouragement and confidence <clears throat> into your heart and into your soul that every part of you would be flooded with hope again and flooded with acceptance again and flooded with belief again that you can rise and make the following days the best quality days of your life lord jesus that no lie of the enemy that no experience no failure no lack no abandonment no anything would be a deterrent for us believing that you're going to stand us on our feet and cause us to march forward, leading our wives and our children and our, you know, whoever else is in our extended family, leading them forwards and providing them with the immeasurable, wonderful gift of, of godly fatherhood. Father, we thank you. I wonder if all of us could stand <coughs> and join these wonderful men. Because there could be somebody today that says, well, I wish somebody had sit on the edge of my bed and believe in me and help me get ready for heaven. You know, my question for you today is very simple. Are you ready for heaven? This little life, we get so occupied with our jobs and our, our little roles. They're very important, but they're very temporary. What's coming is eternity. What's coming is immortality. What's coming at the end of this? When you put it all into perspective, this life is the test for how we'll live eternity. And eternity, it's this long and life is this long. And the best thing that you can do with your life is give it to Christ. He's the author of life. He's the omega of life. He's the end of it. He's the in-between bit. He's got the wisdom and the sense and the understanding that we all need. If you've never given your life to Christ this morning, quickly just throw your hand up in the air and let me see it. I want to pray for you. If you need, to, if you need Jesus this morning, you'd like him to come into your life. It's going to give you another 20 seconds or 30 seconds. If, please, this is so important. There could be some of you saying, okay, well, look, you know, it's crunch time. I need to do this. If that's you, quickly throw your hand up in the air. I'm going to pray for everybody and dismiss the meeting if there's none. And Father, we want to thank you in Jesus' amazing name for your hand of blessing on our lives today. Father, let this church rise and Father, its community in growing and greater ways. Thank you for Shane and Rachel. Thank you that they've led this church to a place where they say, no, our community is more important than our church. This is why we exist, to love our community. Lord, we, we love that about this church, and so your promises to them that have will be given more. And I'm praying that this church will be given more and more and more 
as they lead their community to Christ in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. Amen.